Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Brighter Future, Laidlaw and Company's podcast series. I'm Rick Calhoun, CEO of Laidlaw Wealth Management, and I'm fortunate again today to be joined by David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw and Company. Good morning, David, and thank you again for joining me this morning. Rick, it's great to be back with markets rising overseas following last Friday's rally on Wall Street, and news on balance is good. Data over the weekend showed coronavirus deaths slowed the most in more than a month in Spain, Italy, and France, and all three countries have signaled tentative moves to open up their economies. Meanwhile, this week, there's a lot on deck for investors to consider, with the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, and the ECB all due to announce policy decisions as the battle against COVID-19 continues. Uh, We already saw, actually, earlier today, the Bank of Japan came out and announced additional stimulus measures and plans to buy corporate bonds. On the corporate front, several major economy, or on the economy front, several major economies will release GDP numbers, while corporate earnings will keep flooding in, including from the likes of Amazon, Barclays, Facebook, and Samsung Electronics, among others. Yeah, it is going to be a busy week, Dave. I agree with you. A lot going on, uh, and and I think we've got a lot to talk about. So let's jump into it. You know, a few episodes ago, you referenced the famous Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, for the events that we were living through. And then last week, when we started off the episode, I said that it felt like uh, it was the Dickens novel, The Tale of Two Cities, where the opening paragraph says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, as a way to define the week last week. Um, two weeks ago, excuse me. I think maybe the best way to sum up this past week was bizarre. We had the oil market and such a pricing collapse due to a lack of storage space. You could possibly have gotten paid to store oil in your swimming pool. Um, We had jobless claims numbers that showed over 26 million Americans had filed for unemployment benefits in the past five weeks. Yet the energy sector actually finished up almost 2% for the week while the S&P and the Dow were each off less than about 2%, and the NASDAQ was flat. Wasn't last week a week where people should have been scared to death? Or, I mean, it still make any sense. Yeah, uh, Rick, I fully expect investors have picked up uh, more than a few gray hairs of late, and last week was no exception, especially when focusing on the energy market, where, yes, oil prices went to negative levels last Monday. You know, before the COVID crisis hit, World daily oil consumption was about 100 million barrels uh, a day. Demand now, however, is somewhere between 65 to 70 million barrels a day. So worst case- Wow, I didn't realize it dropped that much. We've got roughly a third of global output that needs to be shut in. You know, now we have West West Texas Intermediate crude trading at like $14.50 a barrel. So at least we can say prices are positive, but the dislocations in the market are just being factored in. You know, it began as a fight for global oil market leadership between Russia and Saudi Arabia has ended up taking U.S. producers out of the market as they've already started to move to shut in production ahead of the 9.7 million barrel per day OPEC plus production cut coming this Friday, May 1st. You know, understand that the break-even price for most U.S. oil shale producers is around $45 a barrel and Saudi Arabia needs $80 a barrel to make its budget. You know, domestically, major share oil producing states such as North Dakota are already witnessing a rapid retrenchment in production. Oil producers there have already closed more than 6,000 wells, curtailing about 405,000 barrels a day in production, or about 30% of the state's total. 
We go downstream in the energy market. U.S. oil refiners process just 12.45 million barrels a day on the week to April 17th, and that was the lowest amount in at least 30 years. And global refineries going forward into May could halt as much as 25% of total refining capacity. Now, globally, there's a greater likelihood of Middle East conflict in this environment of low oil prices. You know, though badly afflicted by COVID, Iran shows no sign of reducing its operations in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and elsewhere. Meanwhile, Israel could start annexing, could soon start annexing the West Bank. All in all, the chances of a regional blowout, which America will either be drawn into or castigated for neglecting, are rising again. You know, this is not something investors can disregard as the coming decimation of America's shale oil firms could eventually lead to the United States' renewed dependence on Saudi oil. Now, you know, apart from that, and the fact that with 26 million Americans filing for unemployment benefits, things are not that bad from a market perspective. You know, thanks to a vigorous and speedy monetary fiscal policy response, COVID has not taken the S&P 500 down as much as the 2008 financial crisis did. You know, at this point back in 2008, um, you know, with the starting sequence of September 29th, the first negative 5% move down for the S&P 500 in that crash, the index was down back in 2008 by about 17.6%. Now, if we look at, you know, COVID and start with March 9th, which was the first minus 5% crash day, the S&P 500 is actually up plus 3.3%. Essentially, based on the valuation for U.S. large cap stocks, this indicates a market view that the worst outcomes are off the table. As such, the market believes the U.S. economy will not be shut down again as testing, contact tracing, and social distancing successfully contain COVID until better therapeutics and a vaccine arrive. This is underpinned by a view that monetary and fiscal authorities will remain on guard, ready to allocate fresh capital to keep consumers and businesses relatively whole until the U.S. economy restarts. In all, in all this, it is important for investors to understand that big businesses stand to benefit as smaller firms struggle. And that's going to be a real tailwind for the fundamentals of large public companies as we work our way forward through this downturn. Yeah, it's fascinating to, to think what a potential dichotomy is being set up as we start to see people come back online and as small and mom and pops make it back at all. Um, you know, David, I, 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 we talked about in the past um, topics that we've covered relative to, to our Laidlaw 5 announcement. Um, and as I mentioned, one of the big highlights of this past week was what occurred in the oil markets. And you did a great job uh, sort of explaining a little bit what's going on out there. Although I still find it fascinating that you said that the break-even levels for each of these, for, for um, Saudi Arabia is $80 a barrel. Um, I keep seeing the price of oil coming down. But when I was driving in this morning, the Sunoco by exit 8A on the turnpike actually increased the price to 283 a gallon from 279 last week. So something's not right there, but I digress. Um, I want to focus on one of those topics from Laidlaw 5. And one of our concerns back then was that there could be an exogenous shock that would actually take the place price fall to 75 bucks. We obviously got an exogenous shock, but it was nothing like any of us have experienced. So beyond the obvious answer of demand, 
specifically for refined products, such as gasoline, through people driving and flying again. How do we see our way out of this mess? No, that's a really good question. You know, the market's belief that current policy measures are sufficient to support a share price recovery for the S&P 500, you know, belies the view that the U.S. economy will stage a recovery as we move later into 2020. Now, you know, over the weekend, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin stated his view that the third quarter of 2020 should see strong growth. You know, summer generally sees a peak in energy consumption, so demand recovery will you know, obviously be a, a main driver to clear the current record oil inventories. Now, you know, looking out further, though, it's harder to see a, a rapid drawdown of oil inventories as economic growth is likely to be fairly modest and the path of economic recovery W-shaped with slowdowns and restarts around subsequent COVID outbreaks. You know, if we use the Fed funds futures curve as a market-based forecast for economic growth, it currently discounts 100% odds that the Fed maintains its current interest rate policy of, you know, zero to 25 basis points or zero to a quarter interest rate point of rate, you know, through at least November of 2021. Um, and even though if we look out towards 2022, you know, Fed funds futures aren't as actively traded, the prices nevertheless show that we have to go out beyond June of 2022 to see the odds of a Fed rate increase go over 50%. In bottom line, the oil production capacity that's being shut in now is likely to remain offline through the end of 2021. Wow. I guess that might explain why we heard the announcement this morning that Diamond Offshore was announcing they were going to file for bankruptcy. And um, unfortunately, I think we might see more of that in, in that industry. Um, I, want to, I want to turn to a topic now that I know is near and dear to your heart and where you are considered an industry leader as one of the founding partners of a company called BT Block, and that's blockchain. Um, there was a great article last week, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal that discussed how blockchain could be an efficient way to source medical equipment or invalidate COVID-19 immunity. Now, to most of our listeners and, and, and as myself as well, blockchain is best known as the record-keeping system behind cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ripple. In its simplest terms, of course, blockchain is a decentralized way to keep records that are shared among participants and they can't be changed. However, I know it's not that simple. So maybe you could offer some insights into the world of blockchain, along with explaining how it could be a potential weapon against coronavirus. Certainly, Rick, I appreciate the opportunity to do so. You know, <clears throat> at its heart, it is that simple. You know, we are talking about data integrity when it comes to discussing blockchain in the context of COVID. You know, deploying blockchain across a fragmented current state of data for healthcare that's the challenge. You know, like all pandemics, COVID has served to highlight human frailty. However, unlike all previous pandemics, COVID is impacting a global economy, which depends on the successful operation of highly complex and extended supply chains. You know, changes in business strategy have resulted in companies that are now more extended enterprises than vertically integrated firms. As such, they need to ensure reliability and consistency. At the same time, consumers have come to demand more information about the goods they purchase. Now, distributed ledger technology or blockchain you know, is a means to deliver the high level of integrity increasingly demanded. This is especially so as the global economy increasingly deploys sensor networks that enable the Internet of Things, 
Now, with an increasingly digitized global economy, cybersecurity needs become of greater importance. And in this regard, blockchain offers a greater means of securing data, whether it's enterprise or personal. Now, going more specifically to the context of COVID, blockchain can offer a means to provide anonymized health data records. Over the weekend, my colleague, Dr. Alex Kahana, published a piece called COVID-19 Data is Valuable because we are valuable. And in that piece, Dr. Kahana states that we know that to address COVID successfully, we need mass testing, crowd intelligence, and decentralized tracing. Economically speaking, you know, 35 million tests per day at an annual cost of $100 billion is a fraction of the $350 billion in monthly losses due to the ongoing lockdowns and social distancing measures in the US. In terms of health data, clinical notes, lab and imaging results, genomic and wellness data, added to insurance claims, purchasing, and social media input has contributed to an already saturated 2.7 zettabyte digital universe. 2.7 zettabytes, just for reference, is 2.7 trillion gigabytes of data. So obviously we're clearly talking about, you know, more than just a treasure trove. Uh, we're talking about something that is clearly massive. Now, COVID has shown, however, that this digital universe is fragmented, uncoordinated, and quite fragile. Health data might be designed for daily operations, but it is not organized for a multi-party crisis management, which requires real-time research and analytics. You know, the presence of many intermediaries like enterprise data warehouses, data aggregators, administrators of patient and government registries have created an attack, collusion, and sensor vulnerable environment. You know, with COVID, there is a continued reliance on this fractured data universe to provide information, but it does not leverage the real-time capabilities of federated learning combined with privacy-preserving technologies like ZKP, TEE, and homomorphic encryption, as well as blockchain. One of the efforts to protect personal privacy being led by MIT is building an open interoperable privacy preserving protocol called Private Automated Contact Tracing, or PACT, which is designed to be a technical standard specification that anyone can deploy on any smartphone without revealing private information to other individuals, the government, healthcare providers, or cell phone service providers. You know, there is an opportunity with COVID to put in place the health data platform necessary to combat COVID and by deploying a decentralized approach where both contact and location data are collected exclusively in individual citizens' personal data stores to be shared voluntarily only when the citizen is tested positive for COVID-19 and with a privacy-preserving level of granularity. Blockchain is a technology protocol that can enable this approach by helping to secure the personal data store and capture all this related health information. Dr. Kahana concludes his recent article by making a critical observation in saying, we are actions and our actions are who we are. These actions are captured by data and every time these data are used, abused, or sold by a third party, a part of our dignity is stripped away. These technologies are not merely privacy preserving, 
but are also dignity preserving. You know, the bottom line here is that while COVID may have served to highlight again human frailty, this is now a time where technology can be used to maintain human dignity. Some fantastic uh, stuff, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm glad that there are a lot smarter people than myself working on it because I'm not really sure what a homomorphic encryption is, and maybe we can do a future podcast episode all on this, Dave, but I think this is, is fascinating. Um, I'm going to digress for a second and ask you, would also some of this be related to the technology that's been discussed that if you travel to a country in the future, you may be asked to download some type of a tracking to your smartphone so that if you do get sick, you can track your contact. Is that kind of a similar uh, thinking there? Yeah, I would say that, you know, it, it's entirely likely, uh, highly likely, uh, that some kind of standard along those lines is going to be established in order to reopen uh, the market for uh, air travel um, internationally, if not domestically. Um, and there are challenges around, you know, if people have been infected with COVID and recovered, you know, the fact that they've recovered doesn't necessarily guarantee them immunity. Um, there had been an instance discussed in the case of uh, the country Chile that they were going to is issue passports uh, to people who had recovered from COVID to say that they were immune, but this is not necessarily something that organizations like the World Health Organization are supporting and there have been instances where people who have uh, become infected recovered you know have potentially been at risk again so we think <clears throat> having a store of data that is controlled but accessible um, is going to be a requirement got it got it it's fasc again fascinating stuff and a lot to learn um, great topic uh, let's bring it back to the markets um, and a topic I received more than a few questions about uh, with the debut of DraftKings this past Friday um, through the use of something called a SPAC or a special acquisition, special purpose acquisition company. Um, for our listeners who aren't familiar, a special purpose acquisition company is a company with no commercial operations that is formed strictly to raise capital through an IPO. Um, they're also known as blank check companies and have actually been around for decades. It's just that in recent years, They've kind of gone mainstream, attracting big name underwriters and investors. Richard Branson recently brought out Virgin Galactic Holdings. That was a spaceship company. Twinkie Maker Hostess Brands, a restaurant chain, uh, chain TGI Fridays, and of course, as I mentioned, DraftKings. It was surprising to me that there's actually been $13.6 billion raised in the year 2019 and 59 IPOs for SPACs. David, what else should our listeners know about this growing segment of the public markets? And it is, is it something that, that should be part of an investment portfolio as we move forward in this new world? Now, Rick, you're, you, know, you, you give a really good description of special purpose acquisition companies and SPACs. Um, the only thing I would add in that, you know, typically with a SPAC, uh, you know, once the management team, you know, for this blank check company has raised the capital, they typically have a limited period of time I think typically it's been 24 months or two years in which to identify, you know, an acquisition target and structure a deal. And, you know, once the deal is set, the SPAC investors have to approve the transaction. Now, as you said, if approved the transaction, uh, the newly acquired entity, entity becomes the operating business of the company. Uh, and, and yes, you know, while SPAC issuance was typically seen as indicative of a market top, you know, investors should consider that in light of the stock market decline, 
uh, particularly for smaller companies, you know, the acquisition environment for SPACs has improved in 2020. You know, if the public market valuation for small companies is down, typically you'll see private companies will trade at a discount relative to their public peer comparables. So, you know, in against all this capital that was raised in 2019 and maybe earlier in 2020, you know, SPACs now have a, a far less demanding pricing environment in which to go out and potentially structure deals. And, you know, so as a result of all this, you know, the deals that SPAC teams strike may prove on balance to be more attractive than their historical record, which had been more hit or miss. <laughs> Speaking of hit or miss and, and, and the DraftKings, hopefully uh, the first round draft choice from uh, Joe Burrow can get some new, dra new drapes. They were hit or miss uh, when they were shown in the uh, draft uh, this, on Friday or Thursday night when he was chosen. Uh, you know, David, as we come to the end of another great episode, I'd like to focus our attention on a topic that has been written out a great deal over the years, and that is uh, the sort of growth versus value debate. In fact, uh, this past week in our quarterly investment committee meeting, we spent a great deal of time discussing that very topic. And I think our listeners would be interested in your thoughts and whether it's time to rotate out of growth and into value, or if you even agree that that is a strategy that we should consider pursuing. Yeah, Rick, you know, the debate of growth versus value is a kind of chicken and the egg argument on Wall Street. You know, before companies become large established firms, they start as small unknown entities who contain within them the seeds of greatness. I've spent enough time over the course of my time on Wall Street to, expose, to be exposed to both sides. You know, first in my time as a research analyst covering the auto industry where value is most times the determining factor in making recommendations, and later in following technology companies where the trade-off between a company's growth prospects in terms of its addressable end market and the business plan developed to go capitalize on that market and the valuation of the company were what drove recommendations. What I can say is that the pace of disruptive technology innovation has accelerated over time and its inexorable march poses a growing challenge to all established companies. Namely, either disrupt yourself or risk being disrupted. With that insight, I tend to view many companies that fall in the value category to be those at risk for disruption. You know, it is said that companies earn their valuation over time. And with that, it helps to recall the line from the film, The Shawshank Redemption, namely, get busy living or get busy dying. So, you know, in the context of looking at an accelerating pace of change uh, driven by technology, you know, most companies that fall in the value category, unless they can give a good case as to how they're really trying to disrupt themselves, um, you know, have to have to probably overcome more hurdles in my book to actually be good investment candidates. Now, to bring this all back to the context of our discussion today, we noted earlier that the COVID downturn favors larger firms as having an advantage over smaller entities. I would say that this applies most categorically to the tech sector's mega cap companies, the FANG names, who have ample financial strength to take advantage in the present to move into a wider array of businesses. The stock market recovery in part reflects this already as these names represent over 20% of the S&P 500, a level of market capital concentration that's not been seen since the 2000 stock market. What's different now is that these companies are solidly profitable and as they take advantage of the COVID downturn are likely to increasingly become so. Obviously, nothing grows to the sky 
but for the present, the fang may be relatively unchallenged. You know, we're happy to be proven wrong as we continue to look for those names who contain within them the seeds of future greatness. Great stuff, David, and, and once again, thank you. Um, as we come to the end here today, uh, it's funny, you referenced Shawshank Redemption, and, and I think all of us are looking forward to when we get to the other side of this adventure and speaking the other side. Another great line from that is Andy Dufresne, who climbed, who climbed through a tube of shit and came out clean on the other end, and I hope that all of us will get through this adventure that we're in, this tube that feels like we're caught in it, and we will lead to a brighter future. And with that, I'll bring today's episode to the end. David, thank you again, and look forward to speaking with you next week. Thanks, Rick. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Laidlaw and Company, together with its affiliates and their employees, Laidlaw, solely for informational purposes. Laidlaw is not providing or undertaking to provide any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax, or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be, nor should be construed as the provision of investment advice by Laidlaw to that listener or generally and do not result in any listener being considered a client or customer of Laidlaw. The information statement, comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or make or consider any investment course of action. Laidlaw does not make any representation or warranty as the accuracy or completeness of any of the information statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Laidlaw does not undertake any obligation whatsoever to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast. No part of this podcast may, without Laidlaw's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form by any means.